episode of Alternate Views. Okay. Thank you, Philip, for coming on the show. Um, you know, it's, it's we, we have been trying to schedule this uh, for this past week, uh, but we ran yes, into, we some, yeah, into some technical issues. Uh, so as we had discussed earlier, Philip, this podcast is primarily to try and explore the themes of corruption and inefficiencies uh, in sort of government. And after reading your book, Nothing to Lose, I really wanted to get you on the show uh, for two reasons. A, you talk about Toronto and Canada, which kind of hits close to home because that's where I, I'm from. Right. And, and uh, B, you, you address a broad range of issues from politics to universities to social media and social constructs. So, uh, you know, it, it's like an all-round uh, uh, work on, on the themes that I want to explore. So uh, let's get started. So uh, I just want to start off with the political aspect of it. Uh, so it's something that you refer to in your books as the short pants problem in essentially, which is when cities don't have enough legislative powers to sort of bring about real change. So how did that system come to be? What's the history of it and what uh, potential alternatives can we pursue here? Well, the short pants problem, as I call it, it's not really original to me. It was a phrase coined by the mayor of the current mayor of the city of Toronto, John Tory, right. when he said that he go, when he goes up to Queen's Park to ask the premier for something, he feels like a little boy in short pants. <laughs> this is a rather colorful way, I think, of expressing the fact that really the city of Toronto, or indeed any city in Canada, has very little in the way of power, formal power. They are, first of all, completely cre creations of the province. So in, in the case of Toronto, for example, there's a City of Toronto Act. It's a provincial statute, an Ontario statute, and that's the statute that tells Toronto what it can do and right. what it cannot do. And of course, it can be changed. Right. And a very dramatic illustration of the power of the province in this particular case was when the current Premier, Doug Ford, decided to reduce the size of the Toronto City Council by half. You may remember that. Uh, the reason this is possible is because the Canadian Constitution really gives no power at all to, to cities. The Canadian Constitution, of course, was crafted at a time when cities were far less important than they are now. And all it does really is gives uh, the provinces the power to legislate for cities. So the idea here is that cities, when you look at the city of Toronto, it's got about 5 million people in the GTA, something like that. Yeah. It's an it's economic powerhouse. It's a very complicated place. It's a place with all kinds of needs, very important needs. And my thesis is, and I think many people would agree with this, my thesis is the city of Toronto just does not have the powers, particularly the fiscal powers necessary to look after the people who live here in the proper way. Right. I mean, almost 70% of sort of Canada's population sort of live in urban areas. So I'm sorry that, that this system has been up for so long. And what, how, how does this, system of inequality essentially change? What alternatives can we pursue here? So I say that again? So how does this system of inequality change, right? How, how do we change it? Yeah. Well, that's very difficult. I mean, the, the, the simplest way in, it, in one sense, but almost impossible, is to amend the Constitution of Canada right. to provide more powers to the city, right. to, sit, to the cities of Canada. But that is not gonna happen. First of all, it's very, it's very difficult to amend the Constitution of Canada. It's a very laborious process, very hard to do. 
And secondly, it would require the agreement of the majority of the provinces of this country. And no province is going to agree to emasculate its own powers by handing a whole bunch of powers over to the city. It's just not going to happen. So even though in a kind of a technical sense, that's what you'd want to do, in a practical sense, that isn't going to happen. Right. So I have propo <coughs> proposed various ideas that are not as effective, but might have some effectiveness by what, <coughs> excuse me, by way of modifying in the case of Toronto, the City of Toronto Act, by modifying the, the city charters of other cities in Canada or the legislation that governs them to beef up the powers they've got and to do it in a way that would make it politically difficult for the provinces to take those powers away again, which of course, theoretically they could. So it, it's a complicated piece of legislative and political craftsmanship, but I think it should be attempted. Right, right. I mean, m moving on to like certain complicated issues you also mentioned that we we sort of have a first past the post system yes which essentially it eventually dissolves into a two-party system as we have seen in in yes. you know south of the borders so why why hasn't a ranked system replaced the uh, first past the post system yet well <laughs> i think it's a similar kind of reason really because i mean when, when our current prime minister ran uh, the, the 2016 campaign, which, in which he was successful, of course, uh, he said that he was committed to replacing the first past the post system right. with a, the kind of alternative system, which would give greater power to, for example, more better representation to say the Green Party, possibly the NDP and so on. And for a time, once he was in office, he seemed to cling to that promise or that commitment or that idea. But suddenly, after about 18 months or two years into his term, he decided it wasn't such a good idea. The reason is pretty simple, I think. It's self-interest. Uh, you, you look at the system of, uh, of elections, you look at your own position as, in this case, prime minister and leader of a party and say, I'm not going to change that because it's not in my interest and the interest of my party to do that. So right. he quietly abandoned the idea. Now, some people will say to you, Vic, and there's some substance to this argument, that the great strength of the first past the post system is it most times produces a majority government. And even when it doesn't, such as our situation we're now, it's get, it comes close. You don't have a whole bunch of fragmented parties trying to form coalitions all the time, the way you do, for example, in Israel, the way you do, for example, in Italy, where basically there's a constant political chaos as people try to form governments. We don't have that. And that is, I think, a quite a strong argument. But on right. the other hand, you look at, say, the Green Party. I don't remember how many M federal MPs the Green Party has. I want to say two or maybe three. And yet they get eight or nine percent of the vote. And so there's a gross disparity between the number of people who support the Green Party and vote for it and the number of elected representatives they have. And that seems like, not, a, if I can put it this way, not a very democratic thing. Right. Agreed. Do you like, foresee some kind of a, some change going forward? Do you think like there, that there might be like a referendum, for example? I know that you have spoken not in favor of referendums in your book, but uh, do you think that that system might change going forward? No, I think it, it's it's a bit like the powers of the cities as we discussed a few a few minutes ago. Right. Uh, there are powerful entrenched political interests. And, as we saw 
when Pierre, when when Justin Trudeau abandoned his promise right. to change the system, there were powerful entrenched political interests that don't want these changes to be made, and I think they will prevail. It's to, again, it's subject for debate. You can talk about it. I don't think it's politically feasible. Okay, understood. Cool. Uh, and just you have also mentioned in your book about the sort of drawbacks of holding referendums, and the example that you have mentioned is is Brexit. However, the sort of common perception is that referendums actually give more choice and they give more power to the people. So where do you essentially draw this, the balance between transparency and decision making? When do you actually give the sort of power to the citizen, citizenry and when do you withhold it from them? So it's... Well, a couple of points here. Um, the first is citizens do have power in a system like ours. Right. Uh, or in a system like the United Kingdom, for example. The power comes when they go periodically, every four or five years, to vote for their MP, and, the, and the, who, whichever party gets the majority of MPs or uh, an absolute majority of MPs forms the government. That's the power of the citizen. You and I, we go to the polls, we vote for whoever we want. That's, that's our political power. So it's not necessary, in my opinion, to supplement that or to buttress it by giving some additional political power. For example, the ability to have, hold referendums and vote in referendums that, that may govern policy. You don't, we don't, you don't need that. The parliamentary system that we have and that the United Kingdom has, and some other countries have, wasn't devised with that kind of additional in, instrument in mind. So that's the first thing. We don't need it. We don't need to supplement the power that we as citizens already have. That's the first thing. The second thing is, Referendums are very dangerous, in my opinion. Uh, we've seen that in this country, for example, when we had Quebec held like two referenda uh, on uh, separation, when that issue was tossed to the entire population of the province of Quebec. And most dramatically, of course, we saw it in the case of Brexit, where a referendum was called by the David Cameron Conservative government. He was convinced that the referendum, there's no way the referendum would favor Brexit. He was astonished when it didn't, of course, resign a day or two later on, and then began a catastrophic process, in my opinion, I mean, opinions differ on this, but in my opinion, a catastrophic process, which is leading to a catastrophic result based on a bunch of misunderstandings, people voting when they didn't really understand what they were voting for, um, um, people who were driven by silly ideologies and false, false promises of false information. It was just a very bad example, if you, if you want to call it this, of democracy in action, which has had horrible consequences. I just think it's a bad idea. Right. Right. I mean, but there is that apparent contradiction between giving them more power, right? Like the whole idea of a democracy is that the citizenry has has these powers to sort of impact these decisions, right? I mean, they like we select our, our representatives in, in, in sort of parliament. So we should have right, the right information to be able to make those, those decisions that would impact us as a country and as a society. Well, the original idea, I think I quote this in my book, Nothing Left to Lose, uh, was, it was expressed in a speech to the electors of Bristol by a famous parliamentary Burke called Burke, who said, the whole point here is that you as electors pick someone you think is 
qualified by virtue of experience, intelligence, knowledge, whatever, good judgment, to represent you politically. Uh, now, you think what an MP does. I mean, an MP in the course of a parliament has any number of difficult, different issues, different and difficult issues they must consider. And there are a whole range of them coming up frequently. You can expect the average citizen, the ordinary citizen who does something else for a living, somehow to deal with all that on a day-to-day -day basis. So he elects somebody to do it for him right. that he thinks is a good person to, you know, to, to, to fulfill that task. And I think that system on the whole, not perfect, nothing's perfect, but that system on the whole works and has worked pretty well. Why would you suddenly supplant that when the, the biggest issues of the day come along? Why would you suddenly supplant it with some other approach, which seems to, I mean, you're suggesting is perhaps more democratic in some way, I don't think it is. Why wouldn't you just allow the normal parliamentary course to, you know, to, to happen, the normal me method of deciding things to take place? I, I just don't see any useful role for the refer for referenda. And I think they can be used, as David Cameron tried to, to, to use the Brexit referendum, strategically and that can backfire as it did on him and it can also be used as a, a way of do politicians dodging tricky issues by deciding to throw it to the people rather than trying to decide it themselves which is what they were elected to do it, i just i just don't think it fits nicely into the system of government that we have in this country uh, and i think it's potentially dangerous right and i don't think not to have it in any way detracts from the democratic nation and the democratic nature of a political and a governmental system. Understood. Got it. Okay. And just moving on to something that's closely related is social media. And you have sort of mentioned this in your book as well. And you have mentioned that it, social media actually harms freedom. I mean, the common consensus is that, you know, while the, there might be an abundance of say fake news or incorrect information on social media, but social media does reach a wide number of people and it gives them in, in information to sort of form their own opinions. Whereas pre-social pre media, information was essentially held with the major media houses who sort of control those narratives, right? So in that sense, how does social media actually harm freedom? Doesn't it encourage freedom? Doesn't it encourage more information? Well, it's a, it's a tricky subject. I mean, there are things to be said on both sides of this, of course. Uh, I mean, one argument is, I guess an argument in the sense that you're putting forward is that social media, in fact, empowers people. It gives people a voice who didn't have a voice before. Right. I mean, anybody can open up a Twitter account. Uh, and I, I know I have, yeah. and you have too, I think. Yes. <laughs> can open up a Twitter account and then decide what they want to tweet about, their views on this, their views on that, endless views, dozens of times a day if they want. And th these are people, in some cases, who wouldn't really have had a voice before. They wouldn't have had any way of putting out their views, their opinions, their thoughts, whatever. I understand. Um, but the trouble is that a lot of these voices and opinions and ideas are bad voices, bad opinions, and bad ideas. They're unmediated. In the old days, it was tough to get even a letter to the editor published in the newspaper because somebody looked at it and decided whether it met, you know, standards of some kind or other. 
uh, if you were a reporter for a newspaper or you wrote opinion columns for a newspaper, somebody would look at what you wrote. And it's a guy called an editor and would decide whether it met the standards of the newspaper, whether it needed to be changed, whether it made sense, whether it was based on sound facts. Uh, and so, <clears throat> so none of that happens on social media. My particular problem with social media, and it's, it's a sub part of the general thing I've just described, is the way in which what I call, and other people have called Twitter mobs assemble uh, and judge and condemn, and in some cases destroy people literally overnight based on bad facts, misunderstandings, prejudice, ideology, you name it. I mean, this is a very dangerous thing. It, it also, in my opinion, I say this in the book, can subvert the system of justice that we've laboriously developed and put in place in this and other countries, which has things like rules of evidence, which decide what standard allegations, factual assertions have to meet before a court will consider them and weigh them into in the balance. These, were, these are very important protections that were developed over a long period of time, uh, when, uh, given a lot of thought, all of which are out the window when it comes to social media. Right. So I do understand that um, there are some positive to social media, giving a voice, voice to people who wouldn't have otherwise had it. But I think there are extreme dangers as well. And I think there's ample evidence of that, particularly in recent times. Right. So do you foresee then some sort of a regulations over these social media companies like Facebook, Twitter, or like, so far we have seen that most people, I mean, that there have been a few exceptions, but most people are able to espouse their views, whether it's bigoted or like whether it's, uh, yes. you know, the extreme right wing, extreme left wing, whatever. But people have been able to espouse their views without much uh, in terms of checks and balances. Do you foresee yes. some kind of a regulation taking place here in this space, or is this essentially sort of wild, wild west now? Well, I mean, first of all, I don't foresee really any serious regulation taking place. I mean, I know that Facebook and Twitter under pressure, particularly uh, as a result of various allegations made by the current president of the United States and his acolytes, have started posting little qualifying notes at the bottom of this. Right. I'm, okay, fine. But I think essentially they will remain unregulated because again, the danger of trying to regulate them is considerable. I mean, how would you start censoring or editing or, or is suppressing, let's say, Twitter. Some countries do this. Uh, Turkey has done this. China has done this. I think India has done it on occasion. And when, they, when these countries do that, we all rise up and say, this is appalling kind of state censorship and, and so on. And, and, and Oppressive. Yeah, and it's, we're right to say that. So I think, you know, the horse is out of the barn and you're not going to get the horse back in the barn. And what it means is that people like you and I and other people who care about trying to have a balanced view based on serious facts have to be very discriminating when we look at what posts on social media and decide what we think of. Unfortunately, there are lots of people who are not going to do that. Right. And so that's just the way it's essentially going to be for I don't the foreseeable see, yeah, future. I, I don't see what can be done about it, frankly. And I think it's these these social the social media is a permanent part of the landscape now, with its strengths and its drawbacks. And it does have strengths, 
but it also has huge drawbacks and we're just going to have to figure out over time how to deal with it. Um, right. What else can you do? Yeah, <laughs> agreed. Uh, just moving on from social media to social, to so social structure and social contracts. I mean, you have mentioned this in your book, nothing to lose uh, as well is something that you refer to as the concept of undue deference in the sense that we as Canadians sort of defer to authority a lot more than say our like neighbor south of this border. So why do you think there's such a huge cultural gap uh, between us and the sort of United States? I mean, yeah. Well, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I'm just kind of sort of telling you what I think. All right. I, can't, I can't really explain it, uh, what the origins of it are. I mean, people say things like, well, you have to remember that Canada was essentially founded by a police force, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, you know, moving <laughs> westward as people yeah. move west. And right from the get-go, we were, you know, we were impressed by and gave due deference to people in authority, particularly if they wore uniforms. But that's a little facile. I don't really know what the explanation is. It's, it's something buried deep in the Canadian psyche. Um, you know, what are the aims of Canadian government? What does the Constitution say about that? Peace, order, and good government. We were a kind of a quiescent, compliant people. And in many ways, that served us well. Exactly. You know, I, yeah, you know, it's not a, necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I've been criticized, that particular chapter of my book on deference, I've been, I've been criticized for it by people who said, well, what's wrong with that? Look what happens when you don't have some kind of deference to authority. You have like mayhem, mobs in the street, people behaving in all kinds of crazy ways. And I, and I take the point. But the, one of the examples I give in the book is, let's say, attitudes towards the judiciary, and in particular towards... <clears throat> the Supreme Court of Canada vis-a-vis -vis the Supreme Court of the United States, or even the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom as it now is. In this country, judges, and in particular judges of the highest court, are almost like godlike figures. Right. Uh, you know, they're very seldom criticized. Their pronouncements are ex-cathedra. We're grateful for whatever guidance they have to give us. Uh, and part of it is we, you know, we don't, we don't even show much interest in them as individuals or how they operate. Contrast that with the judges of the Supreme Court of the United States, who are almost kind of pop icons to some extent. Look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's perhaps a leading example of that, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. People get tremendously interested in them, follow their careers, they go on television, they go on talk shows, they write books. They're part of the kind of body politic in a sense, a part of the governance apparatus, they're treated like that. <clears throat> and they're not given, in my opinion, undue deference. I mean, people feel free to criticize them, feel free to, you know, attack them if necessary. Not so much in this country. Now, again, it's a question of balance, right? I mean, you, you can go, we're perhaps too deferential. And I think we could become less differential. We should, could show more interest to be more critical of, of, let's say, the judiciary. But again, you can go too far on that as well. So it's, right. it's a question of balance. Got it. Okay, and then, yeah, just moving on to your to uh, your chapter on universities, and I can partially attest to the sort of capitalistic nature of universities. I was myself an international student uh, a few years ago at the University of. Waterloo, so I am very aware of, of you know their extremely high fee structure, especially for for international students. Um, so, 
I mean, you also mentioned that there's a sort of need for protection for, for you know, students and the oral structure. So how does uh, a, a post-secondary university or college in this country then sort of shrug off its capitalistic tendencies, right? Uh, is there a sort of code of conduct that should be implemented? Is there well, some kind I, of a cap on like tuition fees that should be implemented? Like, how does this well, occur? I, well, there's several things I, I could say and I would like to say about universities. Um, the first is, you haven't asked me about this, but I'm going to use the opportunity to sure, talk about it. Of course, of the course. First is, the first is, what is the essential thing that universities should do? Why do we have universities? Now, I think now the general view is certainly the view of government and the view of students, most students, and therefore the view of university administration, professors and faculties is the universities are there to prepare people for suitable employment at the end of their studies. They're, they're, they're there to train people for jobs. Well, that's a very 21st century view. I would argue it's more around education and research. This is what. <clears throat> well, but research, what kind of research with what, with what objective? You, went, you say you went to the University of Waterloo, which has become a quite a distinguished in, many, in some respects, research university, where my old friend David Johnson was president for quite some time. But I would say to you, Vic, that this is the first of two or three points I'd like to make. I would say to you that the essential job, the core job of a university, as I described in my book, is to teach people, is to do really two things. One is to teach people how to think well, how, as, as I put it, how to tell a good argument from a bad argument. And that's yeah. an ability which is in very short supply, I have to say, in the world today. You know, I need to be able to listen. You need to be able to listen to what somebody said and say, wait a minute, I, I can't accept what he's just said. That's right. a bad argument. And this is why it's a bad argument. That, dis that discrimination, that ability to discriminate is in short supply. And I think universities need to teach that. <clears throat> Secondly, universities need to teach you and I, my grandchild, I have a grandchild down in university, for things that will make their life richer. And I don't mean rich in the sense that they'll get a better income. I mean, an appreciation for history, for music, the ability to speak foreign languages, all those things that will make them enjoy life and appreciate life and get more out of life than they otherwise would. That's the second thing. So, that's the essential mission of universities, in my opinion, and I think it's largely been, and I'm, I'm not the only one who thinks this, largely been abandoned in favor of training people for what the universities think are jobs that will be f available for them in three or four or five years. By the way, sometimes they're not available because this is a very fa fast moving world. Right. You can train someone for a job that exists when he's in first year university, but by the time he graduates, the job doesn't exist anymore. Anyway, that's the first thing. That's essentially what I learned myself as well. Like as soon as I had to graduate, I had to move back home. And then I, I moved here like a couple of years ago because the, the job market was right in the aftermath of the 2008 right. and nine uh, crash. So yeah, you're absolutely right in saying that. Well, a, a good example in, in a way, and I, I want to come back to my other points, but a good example mm -hmm. is law school. I mean, I'm a lawyer by trade. Yeah. Um, and I was a law professor and a dean of a law school for a time. And law, but like law schools are churning out, the, where they were then and they are now churning out lawyers by the bushel, 
And by the way, law school fees are horrendously expensive. That's another story. We'll come to that. To churning out lawyers by the bushel, and people think that if you have a, if you're legally qualified, you know, you're on the road to guaranteed riches. Not true. Not true. A lot of those lawyers who graduating from law school have difficulty getting articling positions, difficulty getting jobs, and find it almost impossible to get those lucrative jobs on Bay Street law firms. I mean, it is not what people think it is, and it is not the, the way of the kind of implicitly presented by law schools. It's not that sure road to riches, but that's another thing. Okay, so that's the first thing. Secondly, <clears throat> universities are now suffused with this kind of political correctness, uh, lack of tolerance for ideas that people find un unpalatable or unpleasant or ideologically impure or old-fashioned or whatever. And I find that a source of great concern because universities, amongst other things, should be places where just about any opinion can be expressed and will be listened to and will not be shouted down or, or will not be deplatformed, to use that horrible expression that's now sometimes used. I mean, if, if, you're, if you can express an unpopular idea in a university, where can you express it? And in my view, the correct response to uh, an idea or, or an argument that you don't like is a better idea or a better argument or a good criticism, or in some cases, just simple humor, rather than shouting that person down or forbidding the expression of that idea. So, which seems to be increasingly what's happening at universities. So that's the second thing. The third thing is, and this is really what you referred to initially, is the way universities have become, in some respects, kind of money-making machines. Now, to some extent, it's not their fault because they have received inadequate government funding. And so they desperately need to supplement their coffers, to fill up the coffers in some other way. But when I see the fees that are being charged, it's astonishing. And it has very serious consequences, I think. And I'll give you one example. So if you go to a law school in Ontario, you can expect the fees to be sort of in the twenty dollars to $30,000 range. That's just the academic fees. Forget all the add-ons, you know, books, other kinds of fees. And if you're not living at home, you know, the cost of living in a residence. So, <clears throat> so that means that people in these law schools are come from, either come from very wealthy families that can afford to pay for that, or will have to go heavily into debt. Those who go heavily into debt are, might want to practice human rights law or poor law or criminal defense law or something, but won't be able to because they can make enough money doing that to, to pay off their debt. So legitimate career choices are foreclosed to them. So essentially you have the children from rich families and others who are going to go into debt and will feel compelled get the best paying job they can in order to retire the debt once they graduate. This is very bad for society, in my opinion. This is very bad for the justice system. This is very bad for the how things operate. But it's, it's never been kind of thought through and the right steps have never been taken. Understood, yeah, fair, fair point. I mean, it, it is a, a sorry sort of affairs when, you know, people students graduate with huge amounts of you know, student loans and then their primary focus is like then to repay these loans as opposed to sort of following their passion in terms of what they learned. Yeah. 
how they're and, applying it in the real world. Yeah, and that's a very bad thing. I mean, I gave the example of law school because that's what I know best, but you're right, you're right to put it the way you put it. I mean, when somebody leaves university, graduates from university, they should be able, feel free, and it would be good for all of us, all of society, if they, as you put it, followed their passion. Right. As opposed to grab some high paying job because they're desperate to repay debt. I mean, that's what we want. We want people following their passion, right. not people who are becoming kind of slaves for, for just about ever because they have to repay this enormous debt load that they incurred going to university. Correct. Totally agree. Uh, also, in your book, you mentioned that there has been a sort of war on science, and you know, there are, and this is maybe the sort of conspiracy theory section of the podcast, but you also mentioned that sort of government scientists actually hid from the public certain revelations, you know, uh, due to potential blowback from the, the public. Yeah. Uh, can you cite any, any examples? Because I tried to, sure. I researched the book, there are none in the book, actually. I think there might be one or two. I don't remember exactly now. But yes, I mean, during the, the, gov the Stephen Harper government, um, Harper and uh, his, some of his ministers took a very hard view on this. They took the view that scientists in government employment were not free to release their results of their research or discuss the results of the research without first clearing it with government information officers who might or might not allow them to do this. Right. I think one example that I remember, I'm not sure if I mentioned in my book, but one example was research that showed the deterioration of the ozone layer that was deemed not um, commensurate with or was not in line with the view, the environmental policies of the Stephen Harper government. And so this information was suppressed. Another example had to do with research on salmon runs in British Columbia, similar sort of thing. The idea being that if your research somehow implicitly criticizes your scientific research or the results of it somehow implicitly criticizes a government policy we're pursuing, and we, you're a government scientist, you can't release it. Now, people caught on to this after a while and they found it to be unacceptable. And there was a lot of pressure put on governments to behave better. And of course, the Trudeau liberal government promised that it would. It's not clear whether it has or not. <clears throat> you know, there's been an ongoing battle. And of course, the, the best uh, example of this, probably unsurpassed in history, is the attitude towards COVID-19 by the United States government. Right. You know, I mean, there's on the one hand science, when people keep saying this has got to be science driven, except there was a valiant attempt not to have it science driven in the United States for whatever political reasons. And this right. is a bad thing. But these are essentially government scientists. These, yes, these not... are government scientists, right. But, if, but, but, if, but if, the, if the people through their taxes hire scientists to investigate particular problems, <clears throat> and then the results of that research, the results of the scientists' research is suppressed because it's not supportive of government policy, surely you would agree with me, Vic. This is yeah. not a good idea. Of course. This, of is, course. A bad, this is a bad <laughs> thing. Yeah. The right yeah, thing would be the, go <clears throat> the government to say, Perhaps we need to revisit and change our policy. You know, the results of our art scientists are putting it in doubt. Right. That's is there, what science is. 
Yeah, uh, but I mean, how do you then separate this, like the scientific research aspect of it from the policy makers and the, the sort of government aspect of it? Is there any way to then I like, think, separate them or will it, will it always be clubbed into like one setup? No, I think that scientists who are paid to do science, doesn't matter who pays them, but they're paid to do science. And, and particularly they're paid to do science in the public interest if they work for government, by definition, you know, they're not working for a drug company right. or <clears throat> they're working with the government for the people of the country. And so they're more than anywhere, whatever they decide, whatever they discover, whatever their research findings are, should be made available for all our benefits. That's essential. And I think any government that tries to do differently uh, needs to be stopped, needs to be told no. Fair enough, yeah. Totally agree with you there on, on that point. Um, just moving on finally to our last uh, discussion point, which is which essentially, you know, we saw, especially in the US, we saw huge moments around the Black Lives Matter, especially post the uh, unfortunate shooting of George Floyd. Uh, you know, and, you know, the, and, and we saw at this almost simultaneously, say, a sort of mainstreaming of the extreme right-wing moments, you know, groups like the Proud Boys, whom even, even President Trump, like, did right. not, did not, like, wish to condemn. Do you see, like, a situation in Canada where these forces arise, you know, uh, and on a related question, how do you, you see the uh, sort of indigenous community sort of empowering themselves to sort of come out of, of these issues that, you know, are in terms of, say, crime or poverty, similar to what the sort of uh, black community faced in the U.S.? Well, first of all, I mean, we like to think of Canada as a kind, understanding, tolerant country, and in many ways it is. Yeah. Certainly in contrast, I would say, it's easy to say this, but I would say it anyway, easy in contrast to the United States. Yeah. However, it may be kind and tolerant, but it isn't that kind and it isn't that tolerant. And there are many examples, bad examples, shameful examples of the opposite in this country. And so there are two, probably many one could pick, but I'll pick two. The obvious one is the appalling history that to some extent continues of the treatment of indigenous peoples in this country. I mean, it's a long and appalling and awful and shameful history. Yeah. <clears throat> and there's, a, I think, a widespread, fairly widespread recognition that this is the case. And there's been attempts through royal commissions and other things to try and change that. Um, and it needs to be dramatically changed, hugely changed. But what strikes me, I mean, this is something that I've followed for a long time, although I sometimes wonder if I really understand it. But what strikes me is in many respects, how little has changed despite you know, the protestations of many good people about it, including government leaders. I mean, when you look at the way in which many of the indigenous peoples in this country live, are forced to live. It's, it's, it's not acceptable. When you think, for example, that there are many indigenous communities, particularly in the far north, which don't have potable drinking water and haven't for a long time, I mean, how can you, how can you be a Canadian and live in this rich and blessed country and yet have citizens who can't turn on a tap and drink water out of it, and, you know, and haven't for decades? intolerable, has to change. And yet you wonder why it isn't changing. It hasn't changed. I mean, we have the resources to change it. I mean, we've had 
We've thrown enormous resources at the pandemic, beyond belief, hundreds of billions of dollars. A small fraction of that could have changed the lives of many of these indigenous communities beyond recognition. So why didn't that happen? So that's the first thing. And then the other thing, <coughs> less- is that, is that indicative of like some kind of a systemic racism in, in this sort of policy yeah, making I, in like gov government or? Well, I dislike the phrase systemic racism and I think yeah. it's thrown around a lot and nobody knows quite what they're talking about when they <laughs> use it. But I think, I think what it may reflect is, you know, deeply ingrained, two, one of two things, deeply ingrained um, um, racism of some kind, you know, but secondly, more than that, maybe indifference. It's not even so much people being racist so much as they're being indifferent. I mean, if you live in one of the big cities of Canada, and as you mentioned earlier, 70% of Canadians live in cities, and you go about your business in the city, it's very, and you probably seldom encounter an indigenous person, it's kind of hard to connect to the way they live and the misery in which they encounter. I mean, you may read a little bit about it in the newspapers or see something on television, but it's not part of your life. So you, you can be, just be indifferent to it. Right. It's, not, it's not that you're racist particularly, you're just indifferent. You could of course argue that that is a form of racism. That's a legitimate argument. <laughs> now the other thing of course is, it's less compelling in some ways because it doesn't have as long a history perhaps, and it's not so widespread, but is racism against colored people, black, black, black people in this country. And that's particularly manifested, I think, and I talk about this in the book a bit, in the, in the way police forces treat them. You know, the, I think there's no doubt, there's been many studies of different kinds which have shown beyond a doubt that police forces are very prejudiced when it comes to black people. You know, they get stopped, they get frisked, they get illegally asked information about where they're going and who they are, far in a far greater numbers proportionately than white people do. This is clearly not, not a good thing. This is a bad thing. And I think attempts are made to stop it. But you know, it's, it's I mean, I just read just a few days ago, somebody told me I should read, and I did read James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, written in the early 60s. And you read his account of the treatment, and which he knew only too well, of black people in the United States. And this is in the early 1960s. This is, this is like 60 years ago, 60 years ago. You read his account, you think to yourself, nothing's changed. It's still the same. I mean, some of the details may have changed, but, it's, but the, the essential problem's not changed. So you think that, well, maybe there's some kind of deeply ingrained quality, if, if quality is the right word, and kind of the human heart, which makes them behave in this way. Very hard to get rid of it. Very, very hard to educate people out of it. Very hard to legislate the stopping of it. Very hard. Right. I mean, I'm writing a book now, and this is a bit of a digression, but I'm writing a book now on anti-Semitism. You know, and, and you know, people hate Jews, and they have for hundreds of years, and in many cases still do. Why is that? What is it about human beings that leads them <coughs> to behave in these ways that are often irrational, have no grounding at all in fact or history. It's a, it's a, it's a conundrum and it, it, I can't, if I could explain it, I'd be famous, <laughs> which uh, I'm not. <laughs> um, just 
just point back at your earlier point. So do you see some kind of an affirmative action, for example, taking place for the in indigenous community here, given their appalling conditions and the sort of way they live and, and well, their, I, their high rates of crime or addiction issues or, or poverty and so on? Is, is there some, is there going to be some corrective measures that are like going to be taken? Uh, well, I think there certainly should be. And I think it's the job of government. That's why we have government. The only government has the power and the financial resources to have some chance of fixing this. And you can't fix everything. You can't fix history. You can't fix this ingrained emotion that people, some people have that I was just mentioning a minute or two ago. You can't wave a magic wand and fix everything. You can sure give it a try. And I think what's necessary here is a very sustained, thoughtful, well-financed effort on the part of the federal government to improve things. Only they can do it, I think. Right. I mean, we as individual citizens can support the federal government, can vote for people who say they're going to do it, but we can't do it. The government has to do it. And the government, all governments are full of good intentions. I mean, I'm sure if you ask the prime minister what he thought about it, he would think, yes, yes, of course we have to do it. But then you wait to see something being done. And that's when, you know, you wonder what's being done and why, why so little is being done. Because in my perception, very little is being done. Yeah. That's, a, that's a sad state of affairs. And I think like we, we should all hope for a better, uh, you know, like a sort of better treatment and a uplifting of those communities there. I mean, it, it is truly appalling. I, it is appalling. And, and sometimes you wonder about the willingness, let alone the capacity of governments to fix these really big problems. I mean, you haven't mentioned the whole environmental collapse of biodiversity, global warming problem, which is still, notwithstanding COVID-19, still the biggest problem we face beyond any other problem. And governments, you know, they talk about it. It was the Paris Accord, which was totally insufficient. <clears throat> there's various reasons why we can't fix it. One of them is that it's an international problem. There's no real international mechanism that compels people to fix it. So, you know, you can still have huge de development of coal deposits in India, for example, because no one can stop the Indians doing that. You know, so what's government to do? What's the world to do? I mean, we do what we can. I'm a great supporter of, of the recent uh, increased carbon tax, although they don't like the tax introduced by the Liberal government. I mean, we, we'll, we'll, we as Canada, a small country, an industrial country, but a small country, we'll do what we can. Sometimes you, you think that governments look at these problems, getting back to the Indigenous problem, which is a big, complicated, historically rooted problem that generates a lot of emotions of all kinds. They look at the we can't do that. You know, we, it's just, it's too difficult. I have a friend who talks about putting things on the too difficult pile. So you just sometimes say, it's just too difficult, you know, and furthermore, we're only here for four years. We can't even get started on it in four years. So we'll say the right things or we'll make a few gestures, but we can't fix this. Right. That's, yeah, that sounds like reality to, to be honest. So, I believe we are at time. So thank you so much. Okay. This was an okay. amazing, well, amazing chat. I'll just uh, disable the recording now.